delighted to uh, have Antonio Forster on the podcast, Building New Realities, um, today. And uh, Antonio, I'd love to know a bit more about your background. So you're currently a uh, technical specialist at Unity, but I believe your, your background was in animal behavior before that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So my background is not in computer science at all, despite my role now being uh, very heavily in that. Uh, my background is actually in animal behavior and zoology. I did uh, both a bachelor's and master's in animal behavior and moved on to a PhD until I realized that doing the research wasn't what really sparked my passion. It was communicating about it. So I went into science communication full time. I worked in zoos and science centers. The person who says, these are the penguins. That was my job for a while. It was great fun. Uh, involved a combination of education and uh, working with people of all ages, animal handling, using my zoological background. And eventually I moved, as I said, into science centers and then a planetarium. It was actually the only 3D planetarium in the US. UK, a 12 meter dome with two special projectors that project 3D content onto the dome. I started out as a presenter there, um, delivering shows about astronomy, and then actually learned to program the planetarium to create new shows, which was fantastic. But the planetarium uses its own language. It's a proprietary programming language that can only do astronomy content. So we received requests for underwater shows or shows about the desert or the rainforest, but there was absolutely no capacity to do that with the software we had. So I was interested in finding a different piece of software where I could create 3D, 360 content, but of anything I wanted. And I Googled it and landed on Unity. And I started learning to use it because it was free. And I used just online resources. So YouTube, I think maybe I bought one course on Udemy. I spent about 15 pounds in total on my VR education. Uh, and I basically had the intuition that if I was creating 3D 360 content in this physical sphere, then I could also create virtual reality content in which you are in a sort of virtual sphere. And it turns out that's exactly correct. So I learned Unity and C Sharp using the internet and started making shows for the physical dome. I put Unity content onto the planetarium facility. And I also took the planetarium's shows and put them into virtual reality. And after doing that for a while, I launched into a new career as a full-time Unity developer specializing in virtual reality. And uh, I kept doing public speaking on the side because it's always been a passion of mine. And then I got a call from Unity to do the role that I do now, which historically, I guess you would have called a technical evangelist. Um, right now, my title is technical specialist, but it's a combination of coding and developing demos and proof of concepts and writing software solutions, and also public speaking and delivering webinars and educational content. So it's really the ideal role for me. Sounds like a great role. And it's lovely to, to hear the progression as well. Mm. You know, just kind of following opportunities, but also just following your passion. Mm. That certainly sort of answers the question of how did you end up in this field? Mm. And I think I've got questions for you both on, you know, what you're doing at Unity in as much as you're able to talk about that stuff. Sure. Uh, and then about, I'm also really interested on the, you know, the, the crossover on the animal psychology mm. Um just because you know, it, it, I think it's a fascinating uh, intersection. So mm. if we start with the, uh, you know, the, the technical side. So, you know, obviously here at Future Visual, one of our sort of guiding stars has always been, you know, providing access to situations and scenarios that are physically impossible or prohibitively expensive. Mm. And that's kind of like the whole thing with immersive spaces, isn't it? So mm. in terms of your, 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 your work at Unity, how much of it is... Um, technical research and how much of it is almost uh, empathetic, emotional, psychological 
um, research or taking that as a consideration? That's a very interesting question. I wouldn't say that there's a clear dividing line. So one of the webinars I delivered recently was about virtual reality safety training in the architectural, engineering, and construction fields. Mm. And in that, in particular, using emotional connections and using behavioral psychology, you can impact long-term behavioral change for social benefit and also for economic benefit and for safety, especially in terms of safety. Um, and, and that's both a technical challenge, but also very closely tied in with the sort of psychology and the behavior of the person experiencing it. And the real benefit of virtual reality in that scenario is that you can engender a feeling of risk or even fear in a participant without putting them in any real danger. So if you ask someone about the importance of um, PPE, protective equipment, or following safety protocols in a written test, it's very easy for them to say, yes, of course, it's really important. And then when it comes to it, actually just discard that knowledge because they don't feel at risk. If you use virtual reality to simulate working at height, for example, or to simulate a fire or a hazard or an emergency scenario, you can make someone feel as if they are in a risky situation and show them what happens if they do follow a protocol versus the risks that they um, are, are present if they don't follow that protocol. And that leads to much more effective behavioral change in the long run. So that's just one example, I think, of using virtual reality to create a scenario that would be prohibitively, as you said, expensive or impractical or, or potentially dangerous to simulate in real life for a myriad of benefits for the user. Yeah, I think it's that that, that understanding of the, the emotional impacts is, mm. it, it just feels that like we're at the beginning of that discipline. Obviously, mm. people like HP with their Omnis, Omniset system uh, are starting mm. to try and look at that in terms of capturing data. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's often, it's, it's not that understood because obviously because it's such a new field mm. uh, and not a lot of people have been, uh, been, been working on it. Um, I mean, obviously you're obviously very active in the LGBTQIA plus uh, mm. um, um, space. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on slightly on the less PPE and hazard training, <laughs> but what your thoughts are on uh, you know, VR as, a, as, a, as an empathy Mm. You know, it used to be referred to as an empathy machine a couple of years ago, wasn't mm. it? All in vogue, empathy machine, and all the installations <laughs> were like, hey, come on, be, you know, get in this boat and feel like you're crossing the channel and other stuff like that. Mm. Um, but obviously within the wider context that you've got of perhaps, or making assumption there of, you know, walking in other people's shoes, wondering mm. what your views were on that. Yeah. Um, so as you said, there used to be a lot of talk around virtual reality as a sort of empathy machine, and it does give you a unique ability to see through someone else's eyes almost and to be in a situation whether that's through 360 video where you're very accurately capturing something but you don't have as much interaction versus something like a game or a simulated reality where you can have very interactive content um the problem is things like i don't remember the exact term for it right now off the top of my head but essentially marginalization tourism or oppression tourism mm. is, is the real risk there. So the idea that, oh, I've done a virtual reality experience about homelessness and yeah. it was 10 minutes long and therefore I know what it's like to be homeless is obviously nonsensical and actually kind of dangerous yeah. because people who fall into any marginalized group, whether that's um, to do with your race, to do with your gender, your sexuality, your 
class, your economic situation. There are a really broad range of experiences that can manifest very differently for different people. So a a black queer woman's experience uh, is going to be very different to like a uh, a white trans woman who's struggling with a disability. And there are all these different intersections of identities and experiences. So the danger, I think, in using virtual reality to simulate that is that it can give a false sense of understanding, that you know what something is like because you've been a tourist there for five or 10 minutes. So I think there is potential there, but there's also a risk that we have to be aware of. Yeah, I completely agree. It's it's coming from the the sort of, um, you know, if you're able to jump into those experiences and jump in and out of them, then the tourism kind of tag um, is really appropriate. And I think with any sort of new technology or experience, people can often hold it up as the solution. It's like, mm. hey, look at this shiny thing. It's going to it's gonna fix everything. You know, whether it's people being evangelical about blockchain, VR and AR, you know, there's, mm. just, there's just, well, you know, this huge rush of enthusiasm. So I, I think that's a really valid point mm. um, about, yeah, you can't, because humans like to find solutions very quickly, don't they? But mm. actually, you know, really genuinely experiencing this at a human level is, you have to, you have to have gone through it yourself. You you have to have experienced it generally. You can't just dip in and out. I mean, yeah, a- and I would also say that someone who has gone through, so for example, I as a an LGBT person, I've uh, experienced homophobic uh, marginalization, like very actively. I've experienced aggressive threats to do with that. Um, but I also have privileges for being white. I'm a, a cisgendered woman, a white woman. I don't have any disabilities, uh, and so I actually can never know someone else's experience. Mm-hmm. Even though I may have some crossover or even another person with a very similar identity to me, another sort of cis white woman who's queer may have a completely different experience. Um, So, yeah, I think VR is a very interesting tool in increasing empathy. And there is some evidence that you can you can certainly use it for education and for understanding. But I think we have to be careful not to gain a false sense of security around that and think that these issues are now solved because we can use virtual reality to completely eradicate them. That's definitely overstating its abilities. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if you're able to, like any of the, obviously you've explained part of what you do at Unity, which is talking, mm-hmm. communicating. Um, are there any particular niches you're working on there, whether it's um, real-time volumetrics, whether it's full-body tracking, face tracking? What's the sort of di- what's the direction of travel um, within your sector? Yeah, I mean, Unity is huge. It's about 5,000 people now. So we have teams working on everything you could possibly imagine. Um, For me personally, I work on XR across industries. So everything from architecture to engineering to automotive, manufacture, retail, energy, government, aerospace, anything. Oh, and film as well, media and entertainment. So anything within those spheres is my remit, which is quite a lot. Um, I'm particularly interested in hand tracking and also in full body tracking. I think the, um, the the benefits are huge. It not only allows you to communicate more effectively. Um, if you've, if anyone listening has used things like VR chat, um, you'll know that when people have full body tracking, it's a very expressive medium. People can really. I mean, you can dance. You can like see people's whole body movement, which I think is really fantastic. But it also has these impactful industrial benefits. So for example, you can conduct uh, an an analysis of someone's workplace before it's been constructed to prototype it 
and to test whether that's going to cause someone injury or strain over their lifetime. So you can create the most comfortable possible environments for workers to really increase their quality of life. And that real world impact, I think, is very interesting and very important that we can use virtual reality to, to have very impactful benefits to people. So yeah, for me, full body tracking and hand tracking are two areas that I'm particularly interested in. Well, what are your feeling on the um, the sort of, I was going to say native hand tracking, that doesn't sound quite right, like yeah, um, yeah. Cont- controllerless hand tracking? Well, full uh, disclosure, I used to work at uh, UltraLeap, um, okay. who were previously UltraHaptics. So you may know them as Leap Motion. Yeah. Um, so Leap Motion and UltraHaptics kind of combined forces to become UltraLeap, and yeah. they do controllerless and uh, w- you don't need to have any wearables. It's just camera-based mm-hmm. hand tracking. Um, I think it's fantastic. It's a very affordable solution. It's a very robust solution. Um, but of course, there's a, there's a myriad of options if you're using a HoloLens that has um, sort of onboarded uh, inbuilt hand tracking itself. The Quest 2 has its own hand tracking. Uh, Leap Motion or Ultra Leap have their own solution. And then there are also wearables, so things like Manus. Um, so I actually have all of these solutions in my house. I'm interested in all of them. Um, I think each one has different pros and cons, and it really depends on your use case. Well, what do you think the greatest technical challenges are with hand tracking? Because it, when it first, when I first got the, uh, we had the Leap Motion beta dev kit, the one where it didn't even have like a casing. So mm. This came out on the on the PCB with the two cameras, mm. um, and I'm you know trying it then with like the drop down menus. It's like wow, this is incredible. Mm. Uh, you know, really blown away. And obviously, Quest Two track hand tracking pretty good. Mm. Uh, yeah, you know, I think you go into some of the demos now that are sort of held up as great examples. And going back to the human nature thing, you're kind of like. Oh, yeah, okay. It kind of works. There's areas where it doesn't work. So what do you think are the greatest technological challenges with hand tracking? Because it's solving the last 10% on hand tracking is going to be hard. Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of challenges, and it's interesting. I think the challenges are a combination, again, of technical and social or behavioral. So onboarding someone and teaching them gestures can be quite challenging. So... Uh, take the example of keyboards. Virtual reality and augmented reality keyboards have always been a challenge because the most intuitive thing to do is to blow it up so it's very large and just press the buttons in midair. But that's very tiring. If you continually press a long string of buttons in midair, it's much more tiring than using a keyboard. One alternative is to use a finger pointer. So you point, uh, shoot a ray out of your index finger and you point at the letter you want and then you pinch your other hand to select the letter. And that's a much more efficient system, but it's very challenging to onboard a user and teach them something that is very different and very new to them. Um, hand tracking has the benefit that if you do teach someone direct manipulation to reach out and grab with their hands, that's extremely intuitive because it's what we've all done since we were babies to interact with the physical world. And it's much more accessible because it doesn't rely on someone having any experience with controllers or with, for example, video game devices. They can just reach out and grab. But any more complex onboarding than that, you have to very carefully think about how you're going to introduce that to the user. How do you want to visualize that? Do you use ghost hands? Do you use diagrams? Um, do you use voice commands? Uh, and another challenge is diversity within users. So you may have some users with very small hands and for camera-based hand tracking, that can present a challenge. Um, 
Skin color often isn't as much of a challenge as you'd think because a lot of these devices use infrared, so that's sort of irrelevant. Um, but things like missing fingers or having a hand tattoo, um, or for example, some users can't, because of access needs, can't raise their hands above a certain height. Mm. So you really have to think about the diversity of users. One thing I find very interesting is wearables that uh, read um that are basically neural interfaces that you wear on the wrist. And that allows things like um, CTRL labs, which have been acquired by Facebook. And that allows users without fingers to still do hand tracking, which I find really interesting. And I think the accessibility implications there are huge. Yeah, you almost get into the phantom limb or mm. perhaps the bridge, right? The phantom limb was the, uh, the, the sort of neuroplasticity mm. bridge between that. But if you can actually build an augmented digital layer, mm. Um, but it's really interesting there to to hear that actually one of the the greatest challenges is is the onboarding mm. is people's education uh, as opposed to like oh I need another eight cameras uh, around the headset yeah and actually just thinking about that that system I can see how pointing with one finger like that is really quick yeah on the keyboard and just bang 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 is um is way easier than drumsticks or the existing systems that are out there. And I guess with a bit of kind of like dock style magnification, Mm. like you get off the bottom of your map, then you could be pretty nippy off there. Mm. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, So, yeah, I'm going back to perhaps the intersection between Mm -hmm. um, animal behavior and uh, building new realities. Mm. Um, you know, I often wonder sometimes if uh, if if our human conscious minds have you know given us too many options, um, you know, and we're, and we're able to kind of iterate and build so quickly. And mm. and whether in your experience or your knowledge of animals, you know, what is there that we could is there a route we could learn from animal animal behaviour in terms of dealing with things like trauma? Because my understanding is that some animals deal with trauma quite quickly by right? almost just shaking it off. Like, you know, something scary or threatening will happen to them and they'll have a physical reaction that kind of deals with it for a moment. Whereas humans will, you know, put it to the back of their mind or they maybe don't analyze it. You know, we won't, won't deal with it uh, quickly. So I know it's a bit of a, uh, uh, a big question, but I just wonder with your sort of set of knowledge, whether you, whether you think there's an intersection there or perhaps as we start to look at um, neuro interfaces, of which mm-hmm. I don't know very much, um, where, you know, what kind of routes or possibilities are there and even if we want to go there. Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting question. Um, so I, I can't really speak to trauma in animals. It's definitely not my sort of specific area of expertise. Um, my my specialty in terms of animal behaviour is actually in uh, ant colony and bee colony group decision making. So what you might consider sort of hive mind activity mm-hmm. and how individuals follow very simple algorithmic rules, but as a whole, they have, as much as I hate the word synergy, um, a, a kind of synergistic mind. They're often called a super organism because they operate a bit like neurons in a brain. Each of your neurons can only be on or off. It's very simple, but you put billions of them together and they result in these very robust and complex decisions. Ants are very similar. Each ant is very, very simple, but as a colony, they make very robust decision making. Um, so my specialty is looking into the kind of specifics of decision making and how you can manipulate decision making systems. Um, and there are actually very close parallels with computing in terms of what are called ant algorithms that, for example, Google uses, or at least used to use, I, I believe still uses to search for data. 
essentially leaving a kind of virtual pheromone trail. So there is a lot of crossover. Um, in terms of human psychology, I don't know. Yeah, that's a, that's a very difficult question. I, I wouldn't say I have the expertise on trauma to speak to that specifically. Um, but if there is something we can learn from um, the animal kingdom, or at least from uh, from insect colonies, it would be more around how to work together effectively as a group, um, and also how to get from a system uh, results that are more than the sum of its parts. So you can take these very simple parts, put them together, and, and get something out that is actually much more complex than you'd expect, uh, which is almost magical, I think. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, what, what, are the, what are the tips and, uh, and, and rules we can take from the animal kingdom? On what oh, yeah, good question. Well, the, so it depends on the species. There are 12,500 different species of ants. So whenever people say ants do X, Y, Z, it's a bit like saying mammals do X, Y, Z. Some mammals live in the ocean, some live in houses. So it's obviously very diverse. Not all ants have pheromone trails, um, but the species that I study, Temnothorax albipennis, um, they're a very tiny ant. You can actually keep a whole colony inside a microscope slide. They're very very small and they use what's really? called a, a weighted whole, a whole colony inside yeah. the slide yeah they're very small so wow. each one is the size of a about a full stop in a book wow. and you get about 50 to 100 in a colony and you can keep it inside a microscope slide with a little perimeter so that's what i did i had hundreds of these wow. and uh, ran simulations and tried to predict their behavior and then tested them and saw if they did what i expected um, but they use something called a weighted additive strategy which actually many of us use in our daily lives although we don't realize it so if you were looking for a car you were choosing between five car options one of the best strategies you could have would be to categorize it on a number of aspects. So for example, safety and price and sportiness, for example, um, going a bit top gear here, and, uh, and then decide which of those is most important to you. So for example, maybe safety is your number one aspect. So you're going to give that a weighting of 10 and maybe sportiness is not very important. So you're going to weight that with three and price is pretty important. So you're going to give that a five. Then you score each of the cars you're looking at in each category and multiply by the weight, or you can add it by the weight. It sort of doesn't matter what you do, but if you multiply it and then that gives you what's called your weighted score. So you've weighted it because you've said, well, this one's only slightly better in safety, but safety is very important to me. So that's going to have a big impact. This one's a lot cheaper, but that's less important to me. And then by adjusting those weightings, you can come to uh, different solutions. So you can train on a set of data where you know your preferences and then you can test on a new set of data where you don't know your preferences and find the best result. So ants basically use this strategy to assess nest sites, um, but humans also use it to look for apartments or um, partners or, or cars anything. or anything. Anything, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, of which on most objects, price pay, depending on who you are, price could pay, uh, play the largest role. Uh, right, yeah, you could weight it however you wanted, exactly. But it could be anything, the categories can be anything, it's more the strategy that's, uh, it's, it's a very robust strategy. So it's almost surprising that these tiny creatures do use that strategy, but we, we can show that they do. Well, that's why I sort of asked the, 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 the cross animal human question, because mm. you know, I think we all kind of march the same set of rules, mm. just done in different languages. <laughs> uh, you, you mentioned, um, manipulating decision-making. And I wonder if, if that's something you're uh, investigating through haptics, through sound rewards, through anything like that within the Excel space. It, a little bit, yeah. So it's not something I work on specifically now, um, but 
it is something that when I was working in a, a zoo uh, environment, we had environmental campaigns and we would use behavior change tactics to encourage people to adopt sort of more sustainable behaviors. And you can use those same strategies in XR. So you can encourage someone to um, interact with certain objects. And this is not specific to VR and AR. The same cues have been used in gaming for a long time. So one example is lighting. People often move towards lights. So game and level designers will use lights to guide someone towards the object that they should be interacting with. Um, the one thing that is different in virtual reality is you have six degrees of freedom. So the user can look around in three dimensions and can move in three dimensions if you're including kind of standing up and sitting down or crouching. And that gives an unprecedented level of control to the user. So VR content creators, whether they're filmmakers, game developers, or using it for industrial applications, have to think carefully about how they direct the user's attention because you cannot guarantee the user is moving towards or looking towards the thing you'd like them to. So spatial sound is very important for that and is almost, I think, more important virtual reality than traditional gaming or other content. Um, and again, you can do it with lights. You can be, in the case of augmented reality, you can be fairly obvious and use things like actual arrows to guide someone. Mm -hmm. um, for industrial applications, you really don't want any ambiguity. So things like arrows are fine because it's not, a puzzle to be solved. It's like a training application. It's quite sort of straightforward. Mm -hmm. But yeah, with things like film or gaming, you often want to be more subtle with those cues. Yeah, I mean, that, that's it. I mean, tra training in a way, you know, whilst it's amazing because you can provide access to all these different scenarios, it's, it, it's quite vanilla and <laughs> in terms of its, uh, its UI or its experience. It, it right. might not be on terms of like when you simulate something blowing up or catching fire, mm -hmm. that's when you want people to react. But otherwise, it's very, you know, there's no real mm -hmm. kind of subtlety uh, yeah, you don't want ambiguity. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Did you go in any of the um, the, the Lost Horizon uh, shows last year? No, I, I would have liked to, but no. Yeah, they were really great. I mean, because I was obviously sort of rooting for them. Like, okay, I, I hope this is good. I hope this is good. <laughs> and because um, there was, you know, it's quite a lot of, about them in the press at the time. And because mm. um, I was talking to about this morning, someone about it this morning, which is why I mentioned it. But for me, it was... Um, it was like being able to go and have that sort of peak 3 a.m. dance floor experience. Mm. But in the context of, have you been to Shangri-La at Glass? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know what shangri is like, right? 3 a.m. Yeah. Crazy. And it's kind of like taking you 48 hours to get to that point. Mm. And then it might take you two weeks to recover from that point. But by being able to jump into, into VR, it was, mm. you know, we jumped in. And then all of a sudden we're having conversations with people from Texas and Miami. Mm. And uh, have a great time for a couple of hours, and then jump out and go and cook dinner. Uh, it, it was, it was, and, and be dressed as a shark. You know, have a. Mm. I think that was the, the the greatest thing about it was like I would never go onto the dance floor at Shangri La dressed as a shark, but uh, today I can. I went to um, the so the VR and AR Association Global Summit was a couple of weeks ago, yeah. and I went to the after party there, which was in virtual reality, um, and it was great. Hung out with a bunch of people. Um, the the downside for me is I'm based in the UK, and uh, a lot of the other people are in the US, either the East Coast or West Coast. Yeah. So often, what is a late night party for the USA is like the the wee hours of the morning over here. Yeah, so, really. Late, yeah. yeah, I often have to tap out a little bit earlier than everyone else because of the time difference. Um, but yeah, I love it, and it's one of the things I love full body tracking for is that extra sense of physical presence and really being there. It's it's yeah, extremely it's, it's immersive. surprising. You know, like with the proximity and mm. what, another aspect I love, which is part of the the bigger you know why we work in in in, in VR, 
is the you know the the, the dropping of, of ageism or preconceptions right mm. now normally you might be approached by a group of people in a corner at a dance floor and and feel threatened or mm. whatever your pre pre-programmed instinctive reaction is whereas if mm. you're just as a shark and someone else is you know got a nappy on <laughs> like okay i've got no idea what's going on here let's just have a chat with the person yeah i i really enjoy the aspect of virtual reality is being able to choose your avatar so as someone with piercings and dyed hair i sort of like to choose my avatar in real life as well but yeah. obviously i'm limited in terms of how people perceive me for example people will perceive my gender and um I often don't like that. I don't like that I don't have that control and people won't necessarily just judge the content I'm creating or what I'm saying or doing, but will judge me for things that I can't help and have no control over mm. um, and, and will often rely on stereotypes. So I really enjoy the aspect of virtual reality that you can completely choose how you present. You can experiment with that. You can change that on a minute to minute basis if you want. Mm. And you sort of leave your preconceptions at the door as a result of that. I think the freedom to choose avatars in virtual worlds is really important for that reason. Mm. Great. What do, you, what do you think are the greatest opportunities uh, in your field? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, there's often a lot of chat about the metaverse, as I'm sure you've heard the term thrown around, but essentially no one can ever agree on what it is. Um, the way I see the metaverse is essentially like the internet, but in terms of spatial computing or virtual and augmented reality. So digital spaces that are persistent in the same way the websites are persistent. Uh, worlds where you can come and go, but that don't rely on one single platform or one single application, but instead that you can access through a myriad uh, range of different uh, ways and that you can bring assets from one into another. Um, so I think that's that's the way I perceive the metaverse to kind of be evolving at the moment. And I think the biggest opportunity in terms of social impact is that people can manifest entire worlds without needing any physical resources. So for me, being a virtual reality developer is basically like sorcery you can create an entire world from nothing. And it's incredible to me. It's, it hasn't stopped being novel in the years and years that I've done it now. It's just more interesting. But it's extremely important that we have diverse creators making these worlds because when you enter virtual reality and to some extent augmented reality, but particularly with VR, you're entering into the imagination of a creator. And if we only have creators from one single demographic, that's going to affect the kind of content we see and it's going to affect the kind of people that attract into the space. And it can have some troubling consequences. Lack of diversity in tech has led to um, a number of different um, outcomes that, that are potentially problematic. So things like um, biased AI and data systems, because if one group of people create something, they may not be aware of the assumptions that they're making. Having diverse creators is a way of safeguarding against that. So potentially, I think one of the biggest opportunities is this evolution of a metaverse with more equity and more equality, where we have people choosing how they present and choosing how they interact and having these different, diverse, magical spaces that people can enter. But that comes with the big risk that we have to ensure what we're making is accessible and is also inclusive to people with um, different access needs and uh, avoiding things like stereotyping or the, the problematic results of having only one demographic of person. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting point because essentially technology is a catalyst and a magnifier. 
and mm. it's all being created from one viewpoint, then right. it will continue to magnify. I think the, the example you mentioned in Twitter, mm. uh, one of the early AIs just turned into mm. a, you know, a, a racist bot. Uh, <laughs> presumably because of what it was reading, um, perhaps, yeah. as opposed to how it had been coded. But Right, exactly. It's not that these things are intentionally coded in, but if you yeah. feed biased data into a system, you're going to get biased results out, and it's going to just magnify and reinforce. So one great example is recruitment software that mm. was trained. I don't want to sort of name, I know they're not using it anymore, but... Um, one of the big fang organizations was using it um, for recruitment for software developer roles, which mm. sounds great, but they trained it on the existing software developers that they had in-house who'd been successful in their applications. But as it turns out, most of the people who had filled those roles thus far were male, not because they're any more or less capable. It just is how they happen to have recruited historically. So what that meant is that the software looked at those CVs and decided to mark down any CVs that had the word women's. So women's uh, all-girls school or women's chess club or women's sports teams, they would be actively penalized against for containing that word because they didn't match the existing hires. And I think that's an excellent example of something that seems very simple. It's a simple algorithm saying, just hire people who are like the ones we have. But that immediately results in a very problematic outcome, which if you have a more diverse data set going in, you, you don't see that result. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a fascinating point, isn't it? And sometimes these things are uncon- you know, unconscious. Of course, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, just kind of nipping back to the metaverse uh, point mm. raised, because, uh, yeah, obviously, you know, uh, uh, as, as much as empathy, empathy Machine was uh, buzzword bingo three years ago, mm. we're currently in a, yep. a, a metaverse mode. Uh, yeah. So hopefully that will stay for, for a little while uh, <laughs> as, as it continues to mutate. Um, and obviously, you know, what's being put forward as, you know, sparking this metaverse interest is some of the social events that weren't able to happen over mm. the last year, you know, obviously the the, the tailwinds that COVID have provided, uh, mm. which a number of us in, in the VR space are, well, at least grateful that our business was able to sort of flourish in these times. Mm. Um, so yeah, we so we you know to so to name check a few events. Obviously, you know, we've seen concerts in uh, you know Fortnite. We've seen mm. sort of growth of Roblox, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know, talking about the metaverse because those are still quite single, uh, single platform, single ecosystem uh, yeah. experiences. Obviously, Epic have got a lot of scope to kind of go mm-hmm. wider, but wider within their IPs, um, as opposed to what you mentioned, which was taking assets from one metaverse mm-hmm. to to another, or the real kind of cross pollination. Because at the moment, yeah, they they are so you might have Decentraland and you know Decentraland then sort of hooks into other metaverses, but perhaps more via the Discord channel. You know, we've kind of got mm. these very loose uh, digital threads connecting different uh, services mm. rather than a um, integrated movement uh, across platforms. I mean, I, I suspect perhaps when we're looking at it. At that scale, you know, you almost need a new protocol for mm. my stuff and it just comes with me and, and I move it into other experiences, you know, as we really see the evolution of our of our, our digital personas. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I was wondering if you had any, any thoughts or uh, intuitions or perhaps thinking from within, within Inside Unity about how metaverses might uh, emerge. Yeah, um, I will say that... The- sort of any statement I make here is sort of my own speculation rather than like a company-wide message. We do have some um, 
sort of messaging around the metaverse. So, so stay tuned for that. Um, but I don't think there's anything sort of public facing right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would use the examples of uh, Alt Space, Rec Room, and VR Chat, which are all different platforms, um, all built on Unity. And so I think Unity is in this fantastic position to create tools to hook together these worlds um, and potentially to provide a sort of building blocks to create something like the bridges between these metaverse worlds. Um, at Unity, we don't have a singular sort of game. For example, we don't we don't create our our own games. We create tools to enable other people to create platforms and games. Um, so we're really focused on on creating the building blocks and the tools to make this as intuitive as possible. Um, the fact that I ended up at Unity, I think, speaks to the success of the tools. I did not have any background in coding at all, um, bar a planetarium, which was very specifically about astronomy. Um, I didn't have any background in computer science, and all I had was the the community, who were really friendly and welcoming, and YouTube and some courses online. Um, but I was able to pick up the tools and learn to create worlds and create avatars, and um, you know, start implementing my own my own uh, tools in that way. So. Yeah, I think basically the thing that's needed is exactly what you've touched on, some sort of new uh, protocol, a sort of bridge or foundation so that these worlds can connect to each other. That's extremely technically challenging for a number of reasons. But I know there are a lot of people, uh, not just at Unity, but out there in the world, I see developers talking about building these all the time because I think people can see that there's a huge opportunity there and um, that a tool like that would be just incredible. Uh, the risk is that there's a, there's a great XKCD comic around the fact that there are like 15 standards and we need one standard and then you create it. It's like, well, now we have 16 standards. Yeah. Um, I think that's the big, the big risk yeah. is yeah. that this tech is evolving so fast from so many different places and it itself is so the knowledge is so decentralized that which I, which I think is a great thing you know much like the internet there's people everywhere building different websites and it's miraculous that you know, people are able to do that and we're still able to access them all. And I think that's, that's what we re really need is that infrastructure. Um, I, it might be some time until we get to that point, but I'm very curious to see how it evolves. Cool. Um, yeah, it's a moving, moving away from the, from the, the, the detail, uh, of these projects. Um, can you, can you tell me about a, a project that perhaps changed your approach to your field? Hmm. It's a really good question. I'm, we can, I'm sure so we can come back to it if you want to. Yeah, I'm going to have to think about that. I, that's a great question. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just can't. I don't want to pin it down to one. I mean, I deal with so many. The one I have in mind is under NDA, unfortunately. So I do have one in mind, but I definitely can't speak to it. Um, yeah, if we loop back to that one, I'll, I'll have a think. Okay, cool. And uh, yeah, just to get a sort of a, a feel for your further feel for your personality, if you can have a billboard with anything on it to help build a new reality, what would that billboard say and why? Oh, that's a great question. I would say that XR is made by everyone for everyone. I think there's a one of the real struggles right now is awareness. Most people have not used virtual reality it's still sort of niche when you compare it to a monitor. Very, very, Every, 
Right. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's, it's growing a lot, you know, especially over lockdown, there's been a huge adoption and with the affordability of the quest Two, that's really helped. So a lot of people have got into it. Uh, many people who have used virtual reality as well have actually just experienced a, you know, a mobile phone in a sort of cardboard headset, which, or have experienced a headset five years ago or seven years ago. And things have moved on so much that I would say, if you're listening to this and you've experienced virtual reality five years ago, like try it again now, it's very, very different. Um, but I think there is this misconception that people think, well, it's not really for me. I'm not really necessarily into video games. And now we do see that changing. Um, I know Oculus pitch a lot of, for example, fitness apps or meditation apps for the Quest 2. Mm. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that kind of content in the future where it's aimed not at your kind of typical gamer or even a typical developer, but a much wider audience. And that's the thing I would most like to see is more people adopting the technology and especially more people feeling that they are able to be creators with this technology. Even if they don't have that background in coding and they don't have any technical experience, you don't need to. The tools are so accessible now that you really can get started and start developing things. Um, I think the main thing you need actually is persistence because things change so much that once you learn the process, it'll probably change in three or four months time. So you need to be a really persistent well, you person. Need, you need persistence with everything, don't you? If you yeah, <laughs> it's true in life. But I'd say, especially if you're, you want to be a VR developer or an AR developer, you need to be keen to relearn things often. But other than that, you don't need to be a very technically minded person. I don't think of myself as very technical despite my job title. <laughs> yeah, I think the Quest 2 in a way is almost like the... Uh, the Sony Walkman moment, like the Sony Walkman when it came out with the orange headphones. I mean, I was—I remember being a kid when they first came out, and you first see them, you know, on, on the subway, mm. um, you know, in the eighties, and you know, it'd be someone really cool and really bad-looking denim. Oh, it's probably fashion. <laughs> bad-looking denim, white trainers. This is on the on the on the Paris Metro. I can remember <laughs> just like having these orange headphones, and it kind mm. of feels. Although the Quest Two is a fantastic, super advanced bit of kit. Mm. Um, I think perhaps culturally as a kind of jump off point, it feels like there's some parallels um, because of what it can offer and then the cost that it can offer. Yeah, I think the, the cost is really prohibitive still for a lot of people. You know, um, most of the introduction to AR or VR lessons I do, I do with a mobile phone because most people now do have a smartphone and you can develop AR applications for your smartphone very easily in Unity. So I'll always try and target that device because I can sort of assume most people have access to a smartphone or can borrow one. In terms of VR headsets, that's definitely not the case. I would never assume an audience member had a VR headset. So it would be great to get to the point where these things are increasingly affordable and more people have them. And I think as a result of that, we'll see more people learning to develop for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think also a watershed moment could be, I mean, I'm quite excited about when we you know, start to get uh, usable um, pass-through keyboards you know which is, is starting to get there but you know as you know in, in terms of your mobile office you're like great all i need is my uh tethered bluetooth keyboard and take one mm. of these devices quite exciting i will say though if you've tried to code on a vr headset it's not much fun because um staring at a screen in vr for me at least even with a, a well-adjusted ipd into pupillary distance um yeah, I do end up with kind of like sore eyes after a while because I'm staring at quite small. What I need instead is really big text really far away. So I make my monitor like 20 meters big and I put it quite far away from me. And that works better. Um, because the first thing I did when I got a VR headset was like, great, I can have 12 monitors now. Yeah. Um, but it's not that simple. Just overwhelmed by them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the dream, right? <laughs> yeah, but all these monitors, I'm just going to move them around. Yeah. So, um, 
yeah, yeah, it's not as simple as you'd think, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, if you had £100 million to spend on a social programme and no red mm. tape, how would you spend it? Oh, wow, that's a great idea. So I think the best change or the most effective and long-term change comes from within a community itself. So one thing I've seen great success with is training people themselves to be trainers, because that's then a sustainable system where people can train the next set of generation to be themselves to be trainers and they can train others and so on. Um, so I would love to work with a group of um, underrepresented people in tech. So for example, um, queer women of color and to teach them not only how to be developers, but how to train others. Um, so it's something that I'm very aware of is that I don't want as a, a white woman to sort of parachute into community and say, I can help and deliver something that I think is helpful when I have no experience of being in the community myself. Mm -hmm. um, so I tend to work on projects that target the communities that I'm part of, for example, the, the LGBTQ um, virtual reality museum that I'm building at the moment. Um, but if I had sort of an unlimited budget and no red tape, what I really love to do is to give the tools to uh, a different group who are very underrepresented in the sector and enable them to get that training and also to train others. Yeah, lovely. I mean, that, that sort of just speaks of, of, an, of an awareness of, mm. of, of people wanting to pass knowledge uh, uh, along, which mm. I think is a... Uh, you know, that's not using it as an empathy machine. That just happens mm. to be advice. That's just an attitude, right? Of right. To encourage help and share. And getting into um, XR has been absolutely life-changing for me. Like I come from a background in science communication, which is not a very lucrative field at all. Mm. Getting into tech has been, in terms of lifestyle, a complete change for me. Things are now on the table that being a homeowner is something that's potentially in my future, which is something I never would have entertained the possibility of. So it really has these huge real world impact on people's lives because it's it's an amazing sector to be in. It's always growing. There's loads of job opportunities. Mm. Um, it's very different to some other sectors I've been in where there's a, a huge amount of competition for very few roles. It's not like that in XR. There's so many roles and it's growing every day as more companies adopt the tech. Mm. So I'd love to encourage more people into the industry in a sustainable and uh, empathetic way. Mm, lovely. Yeah, you touched on it briefly there, your museum. I'd love to hear a bit more about that, where the idea came from, what you're hoping to achieve with it. Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, I worked in science centers and museums. So I'm very interested in the question of who decides what do we platform in these spaces? And um, particularly in museums, they have somewhat a problematic history of colonialism and sort of heteronormative uh, narratives. So the people who decide what we showcase in a museum typically have been, you know, white and male and straight usually. Um, and so there's particular narratives that are preserved in those spaces. And th that is changing, but it's still a very elite and prestigious opportunity to curate a physical exhibit in a museum. Uh, most people are never going to have the opportunity, myself included. But it occurred to me that virtual reality is a way that anyone can build a museum to platform whatever stories they think are important, whatever needs to be preserved. And so I created this uh, virtual reality museum or gallery. It has lots of artwork on the walls, which is entirely contributed by queer artists all over the world. There's everything from photography to drag queen makeup artistry to um, digital illustration to paintings. And then throughout the museum, there are plinths with 3D objects on. Each object is chosen by a person in the queer community local to me in Bristol, UK. And um, 
that object is significant to the person for one reason or another. And each object has a button next to it. When you press it, it triggers audio by that person to explain why they chose that object and why it's important to them. So we have everything from a teddy bear that someone was given as a gift from their best friend when they came out as a sort of show of allyship and support. We have nail polish, which was used by uh, one guy to kind of explore his gender identity beyond the binary. And my, my personal favorite is a pair of shoes donated by a 63-year-old woman called Pat, who is now married to her wife, but at the time didn't think she'd ever be married. So she received them as a gift on her 40th birthday from her now wife as a sort of joke present of this is what we'll wear when we get married, thinking that that was a pipe dream. It was never going to happen. And so they laughed and they tried them on and they they were expensive. The way she put it was expensive shoes that would never be worn at an event that would never happen. Mm. And uh, when civil partnership became possible, they had a civil partnership, but she didn't wear the shoes because it wasn't really a real wedding. And then 13 years later, when she was 53, they were able to get married and she was able to wear the shoes. So in the museum, I have her shoes and a photo of them um, getting married where she's wearing the shoes. And it really gives me goosebumps, that story. Um, so I just think it's a, a wonderful opportunity to platform certain people's stories, to preserve them and make sure they are recorded somewhere. And to give someone else who maybe feels alone if they are a queer person who doesn't know many other people in the community, or maybe someone who themselves isn't LGBTQ, um, to give them an understanding of the great diversity of experiences that we have. Many of the stories are nothing to do with being queer at all. And I think that's very important because it shows that we're not defined by that. Um, a lot of people wanted to speak about how they're a plant mum first and foremost, and that's the most important part of their identity. Someone else talked about their OCD and mental health. And there's a great intersection of identities that we don't always get to speak about. We're often kind of just isolated and then narrowed down to that one aspect of our identity. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, there's two aspects that, you know, really sort of jump out to me there, which is the ability for someone to curate a museum. What does it mm. feel like? What does it feel mm. like if you wanted to put a space together? I mean, it's a bit like just doing a shared, you know, rather than doing like a collage yourself mm. uh, in a book, you're able to, you're basically able to share the uh, the, the, the interior of your mind. You're like, mm. this is what I want to present. These are the talking points. These are the things that inspire mm. me. So I think that's a, a lovely point. And, um, and of course, because it's an XR, you can just keep growing it, right? You, yeah. You just have, well, just stick another room on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So right now there's about 13 objects and maybe 20 to 25 artworks, but I want to rebuild it for Pride Month, which is June every year. Yeah. So if anyone hears this and wants to be involved, whether you're a developer that wants to help optimizing the experience, that would be great. Do get in touch with me. Um, but it, also if you're a queer person who wants to contribute something that would also be fantastic well we built a gallery internally actually last year um, oh. as, as of doing a bit of experiments we mm. didn't put it out publicly um, but it was lovely being able to think about okay what does the space look like i mean mm. i think we just ended up sticking in a bunch of, of artworks that were sort of recognizable uh, and expensive so it's sort of full of jeff coons balloons and um who else have we got in there? Well, like the cores, you know, the the, mm. the cores kind of sculptures, but um, we turn them into like 60 feet, feet cores so that you could then go and jump on the head. Of, oh, cool. And look down across the whole space. And we've also got like the uh, the NHS rainbow. I'll send you some mm. pictures. Maybe we can do tours of each other's galleries. Yeah, that would be great. I'd love to. I'm hoping to do, um, well, well, Mine will be exhibited at the Open City Documentaries Festival, which is in London in September. But I'm hoping to have a few pop-up exhibitions, um, you know, depending on the pandemic situation, of course. Yeah. Great. Cool. And as, as, we, as we sort of wrap up, um, two other questions I like to ask people, which is, um, if you've got any book recommendations? 
I mean, I do. They're not necessarily related to XR, though. That's okay. Okay. Um, the book I'm reading at the moment is Algorithms to Live By. I think it's fantastic. Sounds like it could, sounds like it could be in the XR space. Yeah, it, it's not specific to XR, I guess, but it is to yeah. do with... Um, so it's about that kind of decision-making that I mentioned before. Yeah. Yeah. It talks about the optimal algorithm for things like the stopping problem. How much do you research a problem before you just call it quits and make your decision? Um, and it turns out the answer is 36%. You should spend about 36% of your time researching. And just the fact there's a number is so, so soothing to me. Like, I don't need to agonize over this decision there is an optimal solution these these are solved problems in the computer science sphere um so that's the book i'm reading at the moment would highly recommend that and who's that by um that's a good question i'll look it up <laughs> that's okay i can find it yeah, it sounds a little bit like i think it was called solving for happiness which was mm. mo i uh, can't remember his surname um who was you know a big uh, tech player and then his son died tragically quite young during an operation mm. so this guy went from a big high achiever to really devastated and he's like okay i've got an engineering technical mind i need to solve for happiness i need to kind of figure my way out of this rather than just a kind of abstract loop of what ifs mm. i'll write it down that sounds perfect that's exactly the kind of thing that's that's the sort of person i am i think if you want to um <laughs> boil me down to sort of a mindset it's definitely that like i want the data and i want the solutions <laughs> i like it it's like self-help with sums yeah exactly <laughs> I'm a big fan of. Uh, and and, uh, and another question is around theories. So there's a theory I love called the uh, the Solomon's paradox, which is basically states that it's easier to give someone else good advice than to give yourself uh, good advice. So I wonder if you had a, a theory that uh, or a kind of retort like that that you. Hmm. What is it called? I do have one, but I can't remember the name of it. The, I mean, the... start with Murphy's Law, which is kind yeah. of a general sort of slang one. Um. Oh, it's so annoying that I can't remember the name of it. Um, but so do you know, I'll, I'll pick a different one that I actually can remember the name of. Um, do you know Dunbar's number? No. Okay. Oh, you'll like this one then. So Dunbar's number is the idea that there's a certain size of social group that you can sustain and it's 150. And so any kind of school or class or um, social group or hobby group or company if it's larger than 150 people, the theory is that um, you'll increase the communications efficacy if you break it down into groups of 150 or less. Um, so yeah, look into Dunbar's number. I find it, it really it interesting. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's been fantastic to talk to, talk to you. Um, really, a real, real pleasure to get a, a bit of insight uh, into, into what, you're, what you're thinking and some of the work you're doing. So uh, thank you, Antonia, for joining us on Building uh, New Realities. In terms of if people want to find you anywhere, I know you're obviously quite active on Twitter and you mentioned your tour that you've got coming out. Is there, is there any... Uh, handles hashtags uh, tools coming up that we should point people towards um so no, no specific hashtag um but if you do yeah follow me on linkedin and twitter those are the two places that you'll be able to find me instagram as well actually but i use it a bit less um so i'm antonia r forster on twitter i'm very active on there so you'll be able to find uh, all the updates on what i'm doing and then also feel free to reach out to me on linkedin and i'll often post uh, my upcoming uh, talks on there um if you look up the unity industrial webinars those are the sort of my, my day job uh, webinars that I'm doing. So you'll see um, the series of uh, in industry specific um, talks. So everything from full body tracking to safety training to ergonomics to AR assisted maintenance and repair. Um, but we also have special talks on um, architecture solutions and uh, product configuration for automotive. So honestly, anything you can imagine. So yeah, do look those oh, up. Quite a wide remit there between yes. the, the engineering stuff and, and then your own personal. Uh, gallery or museum. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so Twitter has a mix of both. So if you're interested in both, follow me on Twitter and, and you'll get all those updates. Yeah, lovely. Well, thanks again, Antonio. Great to uh, speak to you and I'll see you in the metaverse. Yeah, I'll see you there. <laughs> thanks. Bye.